<laughs> there you go. One more time. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Um, okay. So uh, here we go. We're starting. Thank you. Welcome uh, to everybody that's coming online. All right. So here's the question for today. What's the greatest act of love ever? Now, just think about it. Just yell it out. What do you think the greatest act of love ever was? I'd say it's me and Julie, but let's lay that aside. What? Jesus dying on the cross. Is there, honestly, it's very difficult to get past that, isn't it? You know what I mean? I mean, it's like the cross. Of course, the cross. I mean, just a couple of reasons, and there's so many, but just a couple. Um, click me. Uh, the cross, click me again. Okay, God taking upon himself what was due us. The only gruesome thing that I'm gonna talk about today, um, which is fortunate because every week I talk about so many gruesome things. But um, the idea is Jesus on the cross and he has this cat of nine tails that's been on his back and they have a hook and when you pull, you slash and then you pull. And when they pull, it literally sorry, but rips. And the whole imagery behind that is that we were joined to God in creation. When he made us, we were joined to him, everybody. And what happens is, is that he has given us a perfect, beautiful, incredible life to live, but he gave us a free will too. And so what we do is at some point in time, we do that incredibly stupid thing of saying, even though you're the creator of everything, even though you've done so many beautiful things, even though the garden, even though, even though, even though, I still think I have a better way to go. Or at the very least, I wanna go my way in some degree. And when we do that, the imagery is that we're literally ripping from him, okay? I want you to get that image because it sets us up for what's astounding about that moment. Look, my choice to separate myself from him rips him. So why is he the one that said, I need, really need this to be fixed? Hey, you guys, I need this to be fixed, okay? No, I don't need it. I don't want to say click the whole time. If you could, please, can we work on this? Okay, just give me a hand. Go ahead and click it. Are we stuck? Sorry, we had a little tech problem this morning, so we're trying to get it fixed. And the guys are amazing, and they're unbelievable, and so on. But can you click it at all? Well, okay, uh, I'm on the monitor I'm going. Can you just give me one second here? Sorry, guys. I just want to try and get back to scratch here. Okay. I am apparently working, just so that you know, because... I was, it was clicking on the monitor, it just wasn't going to the projector. Yeah. I really am gonna wait for this, so sorry. Anybody got any good Christmas stories? We had our The central group was great, Julie told me. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, any other good things? Self-declared ugliest sweater. You won the ugliest sweater? Self-declared. Oh. <laughs> but are we good now? Well, I don't know. The greatest act of love ever. It seems to be working. Thank you very much. 
You guys are awesome. Okay, God taking upon himself what was due us. But it's all the more remarkable because think about it. We chose to go away from him, thus ripping away from him. And then the one who was ripped, not us, is the one that's on the cross taking upon himself the separation that was due us. We separated, but this, you see it? It's him that's taking that upon himself. This doesn't make any sense in a very real way, but it is clearly a phenomenal act of love. The one offended is the one who's paying. That's extraordinary. So here we go. Now, number, a second reason, but even more remarkable, is that when Jesus took upon himself the consequences due us, he who has been eternally one with the Father and the Spirit was separated from the Father and the Spirit. For eternity, Jesus has been one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now, willingly, by his choice, he did sweat blood not wanting to do it, but he allowed himself to be separated from the Father and the Spirit when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See it? Now, here's the thing. See, the way we talk about it is we say, Jesus, who has been eternally alive, there's never been a time that Jesus hasn't been alive until he died on that cross. So Jesus has been eternally alive, life itself. Jesus is the one through whom everything was created. He is the source of life. And yet... He died. Now, here's the thing, see. When we think of what's really tragic or what's really emotional, what really affects us about the cross, we always say it's the death of Jesus. Because death is the concept that means a lot to us. Death is the thing that, that you know, I just went through several of these. And these are the things that rip us apart, right? These are the things that we can relate to, this death. But here's what I want to show you. For us, the big thing is death, but for God, the big thing is separation. See, death was not the thing for God. That wasn't the thing. It was, it was separation from the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here's the point. God, who knows us perfectly, uses the big things for us, things like death, in order to communicate to us the infinitely bigger thing that he's going for. Do you see it? In other words, we're the ones that understand emotionally death. And what God is doing is he's connecting with us about that death. But he's pointing to something even bigger. He's saying, as much as that affects you, understand what really affects me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, eternally one. Until a moment on the cross when it was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now remember that about God. See, there's our perspective, and then there's his perspective. And this is going to come back in a very important way in just a moment, but I want us to see that. So in the spirit of what is infinitely bigger, deeper thing of God, it, so in the spirit of what is the infinitely bigger, deeper thing of God is trying to communicate to us. Somehow I got that English wrong, okay? But I want you to look at, if the, if the cross is the biggest thing, what is really going on with God coming as a human being? And here's what I want to tell you. As big as the cross is, it's the thing, when we think of the greatest act of love ever, it's the cross. Of course it's the cross. By the time we're done with this sermon, I don't think you'll think that way. 
you'll say at least as big is what actually happened here. That's where we're going, and it has enormous practical impact in our lives. So with this, I love you, Roger and Kathy, both of you. I mean, Roger and Kathy, it is Roger and Kathy. It's never Roger or Kathy. It's always Roger and Kathy. But Roger, what a perfect person to pray for this sermon at this time. So would you lift up the sermon, lift up another church too. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time of year. And as Adam said, that there are some people that are sad, some people that are lonely, and other people that are happy. But through you, Father, we can always rejoice that you came for us and to us to save us from ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, we just thank you for that. And we lift up Kurt in the sermon this morning, and we know that he trusts you, he loves you, and he hears you and speaks what you tell him. So we thank you for that. And I also lift up all the biker churches around the country. Amen. These people need you. They're in, Amen. Uh, the bikers are a forgotten uh, ministry group. So, Father, we just lift them up to you. Give everyone in this room and their families a very Merry Christmas. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So the first thing that we have to look at when we're looking at what happens in what we call the incarnation, that means God becoming flesh, Right? The first thing that we have to look at is this, okay? God is the creator of everything. So that means he's the creator of the universe. That's an entire galaxy, like the Milky Way galaxy, and we're just a little speck in the Milky Way galaxy. But then look at, and the screen, you can't see it, but there's billions and billions and billions so that a whole galaxy is nothing but a little dot, if even a dot. Billions upon billions of galaxies that are doing this. And then look at the, so the size, and then look at the power of that galaxy, okay? So now here's the thing that we have to understand. When God made all of that, which is so large that we can't even begin to actually think about how large it really is. When God did all of that, it wasn't like he's sort of like working and sweating to maintain it. This is something that he just said, let there be light, and all of this just came. This wasn't even him breaking a sweat. This wasn't anything for him. That's how infinitely enormous and powerful God is, right? So then how do you explain this? How does God, the, of the universe, the creator of the universe, how does he become that? Do you see it? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this can't be done. Well, I just love the sort of neediness too, the suckling and the, you know, this is God needing something. God who made everything needs something, put himself in a position to need something. Well, you see, the way that Philippians says it is, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself of his godly attributes. Just three, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, many other things too. Omniscience, all-knowing. He gave that up. Omnipresence, everywhere present, gave that up so they could be in. Omnipotent, the creator of the universe, all-powerful. He gave that up. That he would truly be you and me. Not God kind of like faking it for a little while. Genuinely God becoming human. It's extraordinary 
what he was willing to sacrifice for us. God was communicating that he would empty himself of everything, even who he is, just to be with us. I just have to always say this. Bad trade, God. What you gave up to be with us, it doesn't make any sense to me. I cannot understand why he would choose to do that. But it's not up to me to decide what God should and shouldn't do. It's up to me to understand what he did, and more importantly, why he did it. And here's the reason why he did it. This is the thing. Watch this. He wants to be with us. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah 600 years before Christ. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, a virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, those of you who understand the language right there, there's a very cool thing that God was doing right there because Isaiah is a man in time making a prophecy about a time. And the time he's making the prophecy about in the, first, in the near term is right then. He's saying, there is my daughter standing right here with you. This is a young girl. That Alma can mean young girl or virgin. And by the way, when, when there's a word that can mean two different things, you have to understand when God's using it, he's meaning both things. That's a key to understanding this verse and its messianic aspects. But here's the point, okay? He's saying this girl is gonna grow up and have a baby and it's not gonna be that long. She's a young girl who's going to have a child in just a few years and before she has that child, the things I just prophesied to you about Israel are going to happen. So this is what he's saying, see? And so sure enough, that happened. And so when it happened, they knew that it was God speaking to them, right? But then there's that deeper meaning, that excess meaning that we find so oftentimes in prophecy. And the excess meaning was this word also means virgin. And when Christ is born, most rabbis didn't even understand. They understood a lot of verses to have excess meaning, and they called them messianic, meaning they pointed to Christ. And they knew that the near-term fulfillment wasn't everything, and so they understood that there was more to come, and they understood it was messianic. This wasn't particularly a messianic verse. This is one where they, when they went back, they went, oh my gosh, look, God was telling us that a virgin would bear a child. Oh my gosh. And it was quite clear, and it's said repeatedly throughout scriptures as God is trying to tell us, I meant to do that. <laughs> I had a pun going and I meant to run the pun. See it? So we get that now. But the thing is, is God is with us. God is with us. Wait a minute, no, let's just take that for one second. God is with us. No, no, no. The proper way to say that, if you want to be really technical, is we're with God. See, God doesn't come down to be with us us, we're supposed to go up to be with him. You see it? That's the movement. The movement in all religion is to go to God. Christianity does this really weird thing where it's God coming to us. Let's just take this for a second and let me show you. This idea that he wants to be with us. Tell me, in all of the religions of the world, what other religion is there where the God, whoever, however, wants to be with? I could do this with many, many other ones, but let me just, because all religious impulse comes down to the same thing. It's, it's what we do, because our sense is there's a problem between God and us, 
And now we must bridge that gap. We must do what it takes to get back to him. But let me just take the four biggest ones and show you something. Okay, Buddhism. Is that a religion where God wants to be with us? Well, no, because there is no personal God who wants anything. There's only an impersonal higher consciousness, a nirvana that you get to. The, the point of Buddhism, and again, Buddhism has some variation, but the basic point is, is that what we do is, is that we get outside of ourselves, and when we finally get outside of ourselves, then we begin to connect with a higher consciousness, a state of nirvana, see, of, of, of happiness, of peace because it's not about human desire anymore. It's not about all of this, see? You think about it, Christianity, what did Jesus say? God knows all your temptations. You can't say that in Buddhism, it's not about that. There are these temptations that are holding us down and what you're trying to do is, is that you're trying to get past yourself to get into this higher consciousness, to get to a state of nirvana where you've transcended the earthly things, okay? There's stories of Buddhas not eating for very, very, very long periods of time. Well, they aren't true. If you don't eat, you die. So it's a thing that people think, but it's not a truth. Now, how about Hinduism? That's the third largest religion, okay? Hinduism, we have to understand something about Hinduism. And though many people in this church are from India and friends and so on, people watching. I just want to say something about Hinduism. You, Hinduism, you cannot easily define Hinduism in all of its expression. Hinduism is a, is a very long-term, having multiple streams of things. In fact, just as one example of the ways that it encompasses such a broad range, in Hinduism, you have everything from, this is a minor camp in Hinduism, but you have a type of Hinduism that has a god. But most of Hinduism has multiple gods. But some of Hinduism has no God, atheistic. So you go from everything from a God to multiple gods to atheistic, literally no God, okay? But the point is, is when you take all of Hinduism and you boil it down and you try and find out what's the essence of it, it is this impulse that we've been talking about, which is it's on me to improve. Think about karma. What karma is, is when I do bad things, then bad things happen to me so that I learn how to do good things because then good things happen to me and through a series of lifetimes, I start to understand it and I get better and better and better at being really good until finally one day I finally get out of this world. I finally transcend it and then I don't have to go through karma anymore because I finally understand, okay? So once again, the key to it is it's not relationship. That's not the point. The point is the emphasis, the focus is you getting better. You see it? Islam, second biggest religion. Okay? Islam, is this, now watch, Islam is actually monotheistic. In fact, it's a personal God. In fact, it's the God of Abram. It's that when Abram has two children, Ishmael and then Isaac, one through Sarah, one not, one through the handmaid, Islam chases its, traces its history back through Ishmael, not Isaac. See? Now, the thing is, is that they have a lot of concepts similar to Judaism and to Christianity. They have a concept of heaven, so to speak, but it's paradise. And paradise is a place of lots of blessings. Okay? And some of which, like, for example, a river of wine. Well, you're not supposed to drink wine. You're not supposed to drink alcohol. But in heaven, you get to do what you didn't do here. 
You deny yourself here to get there so that you can do it. See what the impulse is? And so this is what that is. And you can check me on this stuff, okay? Feel free, okay? But the idea is, is God gives a believer paradise, and there is, there, it's not... It's not fair to say that God doesn't want you there. He does want you in heaven. And the greatest thing is, is that when you're in paradise and then you get to see God smiling at you, that's the greatest thing. But let's be clear about what that is. That is a momentary thing that is not about us being in relationship with him. We can't, we can't, be, in, we can't be one with him, for example, that would be completely blasphemous to all Muslims, even in heaven. The idea of being one with God, the idea of being with God, the idea of being, we're way not, even in heaven, we're way not holy enough to be with God. This is not okay. So it's not this, the end is not becoming one with him. Now just contrast that with Christianity. Watch this. In Christianity, not only do we become one with God, heaven itself is us being in God. Literally, we're in him. There's no, more need, there's no more need of the sun and the moon because the Lord is its light. We are, heaven is literally being in him. But it's much more than that. Now watch this. this now we're getting, we're sort of circling back to this idea of him becoming flesh. Now watch this. To top it off completely, when Jesus ascends back to heaven, He's already risen again, and he's been with the disciples for 40 days, and now he has ascended. When he ascends, he doesn't like leave his body behind, his resurrected body, but it's still a human body. Remember, feed me, touch me. It's still a human body. It's a resurrected human body, but it's still a body, and he ascends in that body. You know what that means? That God has made our flesh part of himself. This is way past, way past any religious impulse. This is, we look at it one way, we got to get to him. This is all the way on the other side of God saying, I want to be with you so much that I'm going to make you part of me. Not just with me, part of me. You see it? It's extraordinary. Could anything ever communicate more completely that God wants to be with us? Could it? Ponder, God could have come in many ways if his goal was just to save us. He could have come as an angel and told us what to do and live up to these things. This is a, a lot of religions have that, right? An angel came to, to Muhammad and so on. You got all of these other things that go on. So God could have, we understand, if you really understand theology, you understand atonement and why Jesus had to be a person because it had to be a person dying for a person's sin and so on. So, but that's the way that God set it up. If God didn't want to be with us, he could have set up salvation in some other fashion. He didn't have to come as a baby. So what was God trying to communicate by coming as a baby? I'm putting myself in a place where I need you. 
you got to feed me. you got to hold me. You've got to care for me. You've got to nurture me. You've got to help me grow. God, creator of everything, including us, has flipped it around. And he's made himself needing us to care for him. This is crazy. This is crazy. I hope it's affecting you. Here's what it's trying to communicate. If we truly care for him in our hearts, if we feed him, if we nurture him, if we help him grow in us, he will grow into the fullness of who God wants to be in our hearts and lives. If we don't, he won't. You see it? But if we want him in our lives, then we need to feed. We need to hold. We need to care for. We need to nurture. We need to, see, we need to help him grow in us. That's what that communicates, right? I mean, when you see it, it's obvious. Of course, that's why he came as a baby. He was telling us what it takes to have a relationship with him, and that's care about him, hold him, feed him, nurture, love. That's what causes him to become everything that he actually is, but become that in us. Extraordinary, isn't it? So what's the greatest act of love ever? Of course it's the cross. But does it stand alone? Because isn't God becoming one of us pretty extraordinary? An amazing act of love, of sacrifice, of emptying, of flipping everything, of putting himself in us, in our hearts, in our hands. That's an extraordinary act of love. In fact, let me tell you what the greatest act of love actually is, because it's neither one of these. The greatest love of act of love is that he wants to be with us. Because that's where it all comes from. The fact that he wants to be with us is why he has to come as a baby. Because that's him being with us. <laughs> Emmanuel, God with us. This is it. And in order to get to the place where he can make you new and actually be with you and really live with you, then he's got to die for what you did so that you can live in and with him. <laughs> right? I mean, the ground of it, the greatest act of love is that he wants to be with you, and from that, everything else has to flow. This is why I'm saying all this. That has to be the ground of your Christianity. Not that he's putting up with you. Not that he's willing to do a nice thing in grace with you. But that he wants to be, not you plural, you and you and you and you and you and every single person. He wants to be with them and he's willing to die, to empty himself, and to put himself in your hands.
in order to be with you. Now that's a pretty good Christmas message, isn't it? Let's make it really practical. Let's bring it home, though. What is God trying to communicate to us today by showing us the depth of his love that he has for us by coming to us as one of us? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you to speak now. You know what's here. You know what you want to do. You know what you've put in my heart. But I am an inadequate vessel for the fullness and the beauty that you are. And I am begging you that I shouldn't say another word and that you should speak rivers of living water, your presence in every syllable. In Jesus' holy and most beautiful name, give us the Christmas gift you want to give us right now, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I got saved in 1976, just from nothing to God. And I'm not going to reshare my testimony, but I just want to tell you that it was bathed in love, bathed in grace. There were things that he showed me that I was doing wrong that he said he gave to me. Do your theology on that. How's that work? I can't explain it to you. What I can tell you is he made it clear to me at that moment in time that there was things that he had brought into my life for me to experience. And I, it wasn't, I wasn't in the ditch. I, wasn't any, I was in on the height. I was in the pinnacle of what the world had to offer. And God came and revealed himself to me. And so God has always been to me love, but with a certain definition of love. Because a person that gets saved out of sin or gets saved out of desperation or gets saved also has a great love for him, Right? But what I want to tell you is the foundation that I've always had with Jesus, always had with God since the day one was that he is love and of a particular variety, and that is that he just wants to give you everything. That's what he wants to do. He can't because it would hurt us. But what he wants to do is give us everything. That's who I've always known him to be. Now, that's a pretty gracious God, Right? And that's what I've always known him to be. That was 19 years old when that happened. And it didn't take very long for me to discover what every person that's ever been a Christian has, always, has also discovered. And that is that you wish you could have stayed in that moment of salvation forever. But you didn't. And you still made some choices that were your own. And not the better that God had for you, and you knew you shouldn't, but you made the choices. And now you find yourself in a place where most people will interpret it as, surely at the very least, he's disappointed in me. Every Christian has felt some form of this. Some of them feel it acutely in that I have sinned and he could never forgive me. Now, we know that's not true. But some people will be just, side, just this side of that, and they will say something along the lines of, okay, I get it. Grace is he loves me even though I just can't get it right, and even though I just never get it right, and even though I just keep, and even though, and even though. And so he loves me, and he is surely letting me get into heaven. But let's be clear. There is a round of people that get to be close to him that love him for real. And I love him for real. 
but they, they did better than I did. And so I don't get to be in that wrong. I have to be in one of these other rungs outside of that. And not just that I have to be in an outer ring, but that the things that I've done have disqualified me from having the life that he wanted for me. There was a perfect life that he had for me, and the decisions I made caused me to experience things in such a way as that the life that I have, even at the very best, will always be at the very least plan B, if not plan F or G or H or even Z. You see it? I've disqualified myself from. Now from that will come a religious impulse, which is I've got to work. I've got to do good things. Maybe to balance out, maybe just to get his pleasure, whatever, I've got to do something. See, we go back to religious impulse to try and fix this thing, to fix this lie from the pit of hell that is whispering in our ear the very thing that is causing us to separate from God. When we believe the things that Satan says that we're not worthy in any way, shape, or form, that is a lie that is causing us to separate ourselves from him, even though he's gone nowhere. Paul says it this way in the most important chapter, in the most important book in the Bible. The entire Bible builds to Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, and then the rest of the Bible comes off of that and, and finishes out the rest of stuff that's going to happen. But the Bible climaxes and gets to its ultimate point in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And in Rome, the three things that are happening in there, the first one is this. Paul's saying, as a Christian, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do? Why do I do that? That's number one. Number two. Wait a minute. This is the revelation of the whole of the New Testament. It was prophesied in the old, I'm going to breathe on dry bones and put meat back on them. I'm going to give you a new heart. And what God has done, what Paul understood, what Paul brought to Revelation so the whole of Christianity can understand it, was Paul is the one who said, oh my gosh, it's not me. Because before when I did these things, I wanted to do them. And I may have had some sense that I shouldn't be doing, but I wanted to do them. And I didn't want to do those other things. But now all of a sudden, there's this thing that's fighting. <laughs> there's this thing in me that really, 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 really doesn't want to do them. Even though my flesh wants to still. Number three chapter 8. What you're supposed to do with this battle is you can put your mind on the things of the flesh, in which case you will die. Or you can put your mind on the things of the spirit, in which case he will spiral you up evermore. Now, will you ever get to perfection? No. We talk about this all the time. I talk about cottonwood. You guys have heard this. Who hasn't heard this? I'm not going into it again, but I just want to show you. Cottonwood is the old nature that we were birthed with, the Adamic nature, we call it, and it is inclined to go our own way, and because of that, it's soft, and it doesn't, it's not a good wood, and it rots out. And what God does is he comes along to a person at some point in time, and he says, you really want to be with me? That's fantastic here. And he breathes on you, and you get a new spirit inside, a new nature. 
It came from the mouth, the breath of God. And just like he said, let there be light, and there was light, he breathes into you and says, become new, and you become a new nature, a new creature. There's now an oak tree that's growing up inside of the cottonwood, a different nature. Now, we have to understand something about that. And I've been preaching and talking about this for years, way before I came to this church. This is one of the revelations I got very early in my Christian walk. I believe it's one of the reasons why I'm a minister. Is because what I realized was, is that what God was doing was there's a new nature in you, and when he looks at you, he doesn't see cottonwood. He sees oak, his nature. That's who he has a relationship with. That's who's eternal. That's who he's gonna hold on to. That's who's holding on to him. That, that nature John, Peter, and Paul all tell us can not sin. It doesn't choose to go its own way. Like Jesus, it only chooses God, ever. It's not to say there's not a battle. Jesus had his battle in the garden, but it always chooses God. It's God's nature. It can't do anything but that. <laughs> so I've always understood that when we talk about sanctification, we say it's now and not yet. What's the now? The oak tree. The cottonwood is what goes into the ground. The oak tree is what survives. The oak tree is him, cannot sin. The oak tree is now sanctified 100%. Always been, always will be. Holy God, pun intended. Absolutely and holiness, right? So that's what he's, when he looks at you, what he sees is that. And I've known this in my mind and in my heart for many, many, many decades. And I've known that there was this other thing that was going on and that he wanted me to battle that. Now, just this week, as God often does, he gave me material for this sermon by doing this. He had a guy that I know and really like. I like this guy a lot. And he sent out a little newsletter. And he said, you know, when we talk about Romans 7, we make a critical error because we think of it as Paul's Christian life when in fact it was his pre-Christian life. And what he's saying is you can't call it his Christian life because that would mean that Christians are hopelessly entangled in sin and it will make people think that they shouldn't fight it that they just have to give up because they're never going to win. Now, that is a misreading of the entire book because in the book, here's what Paul says as clearly as you can, as clearly as he possibly can. He's talking about grace and he says things like this, where sin abounds, there much more so does grace. And people take from what he's saying about grace because remember, they're Jewish people steeped in the law and they're trying to get to God. They're trying to do right, stay with him and do, do the right thing so that they can be with God maybe if they luck out and get it right. See? And they're saying this doesn't make any sense to us. Our perspective isn't this. And so because of that, Paul, are you saying that what we should do is go and sin more? Sorry. Yeah, well, no, you, you can be Paul. You're an awesome Paul. Are you kidding? You're amazing. So Paul, are you saying, I'll do it there it's just because, but Paul, are you saying that we should go and sin more so that we experience more grace? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Because that's the logic of what you're saying. And here's what Paul's saying. What a stupid thing to say. Chapter eight is God telling you how to live an ever more sinless life. We're supposed to be doing that. You love God. You love your spouse. You're not trying to do bad things to hurt them. 
You love your child. You're not trying to do bad things to hurt them. You do, though, don't you? But you work at it. This isn't okay. Paul is saying it's ridiculous to say that what you're supposed to do is sin more in order to get more grace. That's just, that's just so wrong-headed, wrong-spirited. But it doesn't take away from the truth of what grace actually is. I have been a Christian since 1976. I have understood everything we just talked about theologically. Since 19, I have preached it to great effect, and God has used it to help change lives, including my own, and it has been that way for a very long time. But it was just a few years ago. How many people remember when I kissed Jeff, Jeff Stevens' feet? <laughs> just raise your hands. How many people remember that? That was a pretty memorable moment for me, too. Now, what we were doing is, is we were looking at the story of the woman who had collected her tears and then poured them on Jesus' feet and wiped them off with her hair and then kissed his feet. Now, in order to illustrate that, I had Jeff standing right here, sitting right here, because remember the tables that they ate at weren't tables and chairs. They were low-lying tables about this tall, if not just the ground. But they were low-lying tables, and then a person would lean, would lay, and they would lean on one elbow and eat with the other, eat with the other hand, see? So they're lean, and their feet go out. And so when she came in, she did this, and I did that with Jeff. I had him as he, as he was reclining, and then I came over, and I kissed his feet. And I wanted it to be a moment. I wanted people to remember that because of the love that was being expressed by this woman. I wanted people to feel it, not just hear it, feel it. But there's a reason why I wanted you to feel it. And I can tell you I've been preaching this almost nonstop since the day that God started showing me it. And that was the week before that sermon. During that week, the Lord came to me and he took the perspective that I had, which I knew was that he, it wasn't about the cottonwood, his blood covered the cottonwood, that all he saw was this, that it was now and not yet. I knew all those things, but there was still in me this You just can't screw up as much as I do and not think that it's affecting your relationship with him. Because if I was screwing up that much with you, it would affect our relationship. And many of you in here, I have affected our relationship by screwing up. And that's a human perspective. And what God did that week before that sermon was he took me over here and he flipped me around, literally turned me around from how I was looking. And he caused me to see grace and us from how he saw it. I knew this and I had felt it in some degree. But I never understood it and owned it like I did in that moment. And I can tell you, I hold on to it better and better since in the last however many years it's been, but I'm working to hold on to it in the way that he gave it to me, which was what he showed me was I wasn't a factor at all. 
the choices I was making. He knew who I was. The choices I was making, as far as east is from west, buried in the deepest ocean, literally out of his mind, put it out of his mind, forgot it, it says in Hebrews and several other places. There wasn't any conception in him whatsoever of my sin. None. 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 I'm saying in me, there was a lot of conception of it. I knew the choices I was making. I knew the processes I was working on in order to try and get out of and so on. But he was saying all of that, none of that was in him at all. None of it. But what was in his heart was he was over here with me fighting that crap. (laughs) He wasn't standing over there looking at me and judging me, watching me, accounting for what I'd done and how I'd done it and, and being disappointed in me. He was in me fighting what was trying to kill me, what was trying to steal from me, what was trying to destroy me. Amen? Amen? That's where he is. He doesn't see any of what we see. (laughs) Any. Instead, he's sitting over there going, I know who you are. (laughs) And let's do battle. Let's go. (laughs) And by the way, you're not such a good battler. I'll take care of it. (laughs) I'm going to do it. You let me fight. You put your things on the things of the spirit. You follow me and I'll get you there. I'll carry you. I'm going to fight. God is not out there watching me. He's in here fighting for me. My sin isn't a thing in him at all. I am am what's in him. We did a baby dedication. How much do you think these parents love this child? (laughs) What would you not do? Even when they get to a certain place. Now, we as human beings, we we can flip over, right? And we can go, wow, you really disappointed me. But you know how it is for a long time in a kid's life. You see the things that are trying to come against them, and what do you do? You fight those things. You're not disappointed in that child. And I am his child, and he is not disappointed in me. And I want to say this so that everybody in this room hears it. He has never been disappointed with me for one second, one nanosecond. He has never been disappointed in me. Ever. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. 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 